I'd like for you to turn to the book of Hebrews chapter 12. But I want to talk about uh, tonight about bitterness, how to prevent it, and how to cure it. Bitterness, how to prevent it, and how to cure it. And while you're um, looking at um, Hebrews chapter 12, you can turn to Job chapter 9 and want to read a little uh, uh, part of that from chapter 9. And here is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 and 15. Pursue peace with all men and the sanctification without which no one will see the Lord. Now, if there ever was a verse that ought to cause you to set up and take notice, it's this one. Pursue sanctification, without which sanctification no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one comes short of the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springing up causes trouble, and by it many be defiled. March the 24th, 1989, there was a cold night off the coast of Alaska, and the captain of a tanker barked orders to a second mate. His orders were vague, and the night was black, and the collision was disastrous. The, the tanker Exxon Valdez ran aground on Bly Reef and a gaping hole was ripped into the, to the tanker, and a million barrels of crude oil spilled out into the most, one of the most scenic places in the whole world. And that petroleum blackened everything, from coastlines to beaches to otters to seagulls, and Alaska was infuriated, and Exxon, who owned the tanker, was humiliated. The collision was terrible, but as terrible as it was, it is mild, it was mild compared to the ones that occur daily in our relationships. You've been there. Someone doesn't meet your expectations. Promises go unfulfilled. Verbal pistols are drawn. A round of words is fired, and the result is a hole in the heart and a black blanket of bitterness spreads over everything. Do you have a hole in your heart? Maybe some parent abused you, or some teacher slighted you, or some mate walked out on you, or some business partner backed out and said, you have your choice, pay, take bankruptcy or pay off these bills. Some friend who owes you money drives by in a new car. Friends escape for the weekend for a getaway and didn't invite you. Our children you raised seem to have forgotten you exist. 
Do you have a hole in your heart? For man has battled bitterness for as long as he has lived. Now the oldest book in the Bible is not Genesis. <laughs> That's going to surprise you. The oldest book in the Bible is Job. Now let me read from chapter 9, verse 14. How then can I answer him and choose my words before him? For though I were right, I could not answer. I would have to implore the mercy of my judge. If I called and he answered me, I could not believe that he was listening to my voice. For he bruises me with a tempest and multiplies my wounds without cause. He will not allow me to get my breath, but saturates me with bitterness, the black blanket of bitterness. Now the problem with that statement by Job, and that surprises us that this man we call patient would have bitterness. The problem with that is, is that God, God doesn't cause the bitterness. His bitterness was the result of his response to trouble. And so is ours. Now I think I need to give a definition of bitterness. And there are several little um, you know, definitions that we put together. Bitterness of heart, see if this sounds like anybody you know. Bitterness of heart is the attitude created within us when we blame circumstances or people for our own failure. The attitude created within us when we blame circumstances or people for our own failure. Bitterness of heart is the atmosphere produced in us internally when we meditate over life circumstances and decide that we've not been given a fair deal. Let me say that in a little shorter words, terms. It's when we look at life and feel like we've gotten a raw deal and it causes this internal atmosphere called bitterness. Bitterness of heart is the mood of the soul when we question the scales of justice and righteousness in God's hands. Bitterness of heart is all this put together. It's a mood, a spirit, an atmosphere, an attitude, a fog of the soul that settles down on everything and colors everything. In turn, it makes the person harsh and unpleasant in all his relationships with others. The bitter person is always ready to cross swords with others. In short, bitterness of heart is the condition produced when we think life has handed us a lemon. Now is there anybody here who fits those definitions? What I want to do tonight is to talk to two different groups of people. The first group of people is the person who is, who is not bitter. And I want to speak a word with regard to how to avoid bitterness and to talk to you about how to prepare or some preparation, prevention for bitterness. Those of you who've not rammed the reef yet. And when I finish talking to that group, you listen in. 
because I want to talk to the rest of us who are already dealing with bitterness about how we can heal from it. All right, the first group. Some preparation or prevention for bitterness. Two or three things. First, pray before you panic. Prayer before panic. Now this is what I mean by that. I'm going to use some alliteration, kind of use it so it'd be easier to remember to jot down. Make sure that your relationship with God is such that when the rope breaks, as Stephen Brown calls it, or the bottom falls out, or the crisis comes, you will have built up a foundation of faith. I call it being prayed up. Now Daniel is, a, Daniel is a perfect example of a person who was faithful to God both before and after a crisis. You know the story. He was exiled into Babylon and the king, by the um, insistence of the, his henchmen, sent out a decree that everybody in the land would worship him as deity and anybody who didn't would be cast into a den of lions. Now Daniel um, was that man of God who did not worship any other deity. Now I want to read you from um, uh, verse of chapter 6, verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the document was signed, he entered his house. Now his roof chamber, in his roof chamber he had windows open toward Jerusalem. And he continued kneeling on his knees three times a day, praying and giving thanks before his God. Here's the kicker. As he had been doing all along. Now what it says is this, that, that even though this man whose life spanned the 70 years of exile when the Babylonians took the Jews in exile in Babylon and had every reason to be bitter, but during this period of time he um, prayed often and he prayed long and when the moment of crisis came, he was prayed up. Now the story of Daniel being thrown in a lion's den and the lions weren't hungry, the story is placed there not to tell us how God delivers his people. That's not the purpose of that story. The purpose of that story is to show us how we are to respond in the, in the, in the lion's den. That is, how we are to respond when trials come. And what he's saying is this, that a person who has developed in his own devotional and prayer life a relationship with God that is so deep and meaningful, when the rope breaks or the bottom falls out or the crisis comes, he's tough enough for it. All right, secondly, there must be knowledge before need. Knowledge before need. I want to refer you to the text again in chapter 12 of Hebrews. Pursue peace with all men and pursue sanctification. Now that word pursue is an interesting word in the, in the Greek language. It means to make a, um, a diligent quest and search of truth. 
It means to, to give all of your energy and, 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 and interest or attention on that which is available to you through God, through your faith in Him. Um, I, I guess that we could say without, you know, too much, uh, it's not too simplistic of an illustration, to say that the Christian life is like a, a lot like going to school, being a school. Now, when I went to school, I didn't know how to study, to be honest with you. I, I, knew, I didn't really know how to study. And I got off to school. I remember my first uh, uh, paper I had to turn in, English paper. This old guy was a, about 150 years old teaching English. And I turned in his paper, and I got it back. It didn't even have a grade on it. It just had big bold red letters, BAH, B-A-H, that'll bless you. I mean, it was so bad, I, I didn't even get a grade, true story. Now, I didn't really know how to do that stuff. I mean, you know, just kind of going through school, kind of drifting along. And I didn't make too good of grades, to be honest with you, the first couple of years of school, and then I learned how to study. And when I learned how to study, I began to make good grades. And I began to love it. And I wanted to make good grades. But I, made it, I, I, I found out this, it didn't take me long to find out this, that if I didn't know the material the night before the test, I probably wasn't going to learn it. And I think a lot of us, you know, going to school, and well, I'm going to wait till a nice night. And I'm going to cram all that, I'm going to cram, baby. I'm going to get all that stuff in on that last night. You're probably not going to learn it. But as you learn it through the year, you know, through the months, the night before the test is just review. Now, some people never spend their time learning. Sound doctrine? They never study the Bible seriously. And they don't have a tough faith for a tough world. And you can't cram the night before the final. And I believe that this is true, that people die the way they live. Occasionally, there'll be some deathbed conversions, but they're few and far between. A person who blasphemes in life usually blasphemes in death, and a person who has a mild concern about God has a, in life has a mild concern about God in death. And the way to deal with um, the, the crisis is to be prepared in knowledge before the crisis comes. I mean, before the test, I know the stuff. Now, I dare say that many of you would not have the slightest knowledge of where to go here when the crisis comes. I mean, you couldn't, some of you couldn't give me one place to turn in Scripture when the crisis came. All right, third, there needs to be thanks before tragedy. Now this is what Ephesians 5, 18 says. Be not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be filled with the Spirit, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord always giving thanks. Now, the way that works is this. 
singing and making melody in your heart, period. Always giving thanks in everything. Always giving thanks in everything. It means the apparent good and the apparent bad. Both are from the hand of God. Always giving thanks in everything. And a man came rushing up to his pastor after he made a statement like that and said, I want to challenge that. Do you mean to tell me that we are to give God thanks for tragedy? And the pastor said, I don't like to thank God for tragedy either, but do you have an alternative? Now I want to consider the alternative. This is an alternative to thanking God even in tragedy. This is an alternative. That God is a limited God who couldn't help it. Now, some of you just swear by Rabbi Kushner's book, you know, Why Do Bad Things Happen to Good People? Wonderful book, I've heard that. Let me give you a statement out of that book by Rabbi Kushner. God would like for people to get what they deserve in life, but He cannot always arrange it. Forgive and love God even though He is not perfect. Some things God does not control. End of quote. Now, do you like that book as well as you thought you did? What Rabbi Kushner is saying is, is that the alternative to giving thanks in tragedy is that God is a limited God who is out of, who, who's allowed this life to get out of control. Or God is a monster and we should rail at Him. Or God is basically good but helpless. The only alternative to that is that everything comes through the hand of God and should be received with praise and thanksgiving. Now, learn to thank God before the tragedy. How do you do that? Well, you thank Him for the little things. You thank Him for the late appointments and the crying babies and the angry husband and the burnt toast. And when you begin to develop that kind of, 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 of style, you establish a hedge against bitterness. Prevention. Now the other group. When you are already around the reef, how can I get over this bitterness? I think there are three or four things, and these are pretty simplistic, but, you know, if you've got something better, we'll let you take over. Number one. Recognize the effects of bitterness. Recognize the effects of bitterness. Verse 15 of our text says, See to it. That word means to look diligently. This is serious business. Bitterness infects anyone who comes in contact with a bitter person and it will kill you and others. Swiss psychiatrist James Mallory said, many of us have an emotional hall of shame. We like to visit it often. 
We like to polish the statue of those who have hurt us. We like to mull over those instances when we have been treated unjustly. End of quote. There's a certain tribe of Polynesians who hang the shrunken heads of their defeated enemies at the door of their hut. Now why have they got these grotesque looking skulls hanging on the door of their hut? To remind, to tell one generation after another that they should remain angry at their enemies. Some of us have hung the heads of our enemies on the walls of our mind so we can stay angry. That'll kill you. Secondly, confess the tendency you have toward bitterness. Confess the tendency you have toward bitterness. Now, somebody said, I like, I've made a hit list. I may be on that, by the way. I made a hit list. He said, I decided I was going to put on a list everybody that, that, that had hurt me or had... had uh, caused some harm to me or created any injustice. He said, I put their name on a hit list. And I put on that hit list some, the instances that have made me angry and bitter. I got my own hit list, he said. And he said, I decided I was going to put this hit list somewhere I could see it every day. Here's the kicker. He said, I promised, I determined that I was going to confess every name on that hit list and pray about it to God. And he said, you know, as I begin to confess this, these experiences, these feelings, these thoughts, all of a sudden that hit list began to shrink. Amazing. And I began to scratch these people and incidents off. Number three, exercise relinquishment. Let them go. Now, let me just pause for a minute and uh, talk to you a little bit about what's in the uh, uh, sciences, of the, the people who study the science of the mind talk about um, uh, these uh, actions of closure, they call it, call it actions of closure. She was love. Everything's gone. He, one day she came home. He said, I'll see you later. I'm out of here. Just walked away. And for about 20 years now, she has endured uh, the pain of that. And she had been going to this Christian psychologist, and he's done a, he, he has just helped her so much. And, and, one of the, and, and one thing he asked her to do which was really an exercise of relinquishment, a, an action of closure, was sit down and write this guy a letter. Not mail it to him, just write him a letter. What, what he was saying is, you need to somehow let that go. Now there are all kinds of ways that happen. If you've read Dale Galloway's book, How to Rebuild Your Life, he's this guy out in, um, in Oregon who was, an, who was a, um, uh, uh, the minister of one of the fastest growing churches out in the West Coast. One day he came home, his wife said, I'm going back to Ohio, took their two children and left. 
He liked to dive. He said, one night I was driving out on the highway, just driving around, just trying to make it through the night. And he said, I got out of the car. He said, fine, I can stand it no longer. He said, I held out my hands like this. He said, Lord, I've had this, I've got this stuff on my hand. I can't stand it any longer. And so I'm going to relinquish. I'm going to turn, I'm going to let go of it. And he said, I just turned my hands upside down. And in a gesture of closure, he said, this now is out of my hands and gone for good. And he turned it loose. He let it go. Now, I don't know if that helps you. It helps some. An exercise of relinquishment. Now, a part of this exercise of relinquishment maybe, even, maybe involves even a confrontation where I, I literally say to that person, I, I've had bitterness in my heart toward you. I want your forgiveness, and I want us to go on with life. All right, number four. Wait on God. Now, I've heard that term all my life, wait on God, wait on God. Now, what does it mean? I want to give you six things, and then we're out of here. I'll just, I'll just mention them. It's not six points with a poem at the end of it. It's just six things. I, I was preaching in my church in Fort Worth. We had this great, huge auditorium wraparound balcony. We had, must have had probably 1,200 people there that day, and I was giving my little list of things. Point, I, had, I had 13 points. <laughs> and I... I was down to about .5, and the one guy in the choir, he said, hold it a minute, Pastor. I mean, this is Sunday morning. He said, hold it. What was number four? You know, he was just shouting them down. After the service, a guy came out of the balcony, he and his wife, and joined the church. They said, we were sitting up there, and when that happened, we said, we won't be in part of a church where somebody feels free to do that. They joined the church. Well, I'm going to give you six points. What does it mean to wait on God? Well, it means this, first of all. It means that far more important than reason or explanation is our relationship with God. He loves us too much to hurt us. And no matter how much He per may permit us to be hurt, he will, he's too wise to make a mistake. And what matters is not why this happened or explanations for it happening. What matters more than that is our relationship with God and that must not be, that, you know, nothing must uh, affect that. Wait on God. Number two. God owes us no explanation. He owes us no explanation. The amazing thing is that we try to give people explanations so we can protect God. I'm here to tell you God owes you no explanation. You owe Him your complete love and trust. Number three, we must be honest with ourselves and with God. Now this closure that I was talking about is both Godward and manward. So we, we, we can tell God how we feel. And it'll be good, it's good to be open and honest with Him, maintaining this pious facade that says, I'm not hurting, oh, not me, nobody will ever hurt me. Like that song at the Chevrolet commercial, you know, I'm a rock. <laughs> nobody ever bothers me, baloney. Number four, 
Beware of cut and dried theologies that reduce the ways of God to a manageable formula that keeps life safe. Now I want to say what that means, I think. It means that nobody here or anywhere else will ever be in a place where they'll never be hurt. And God is not going to put you in a glass, um, in, a, in a safe place where nothing will ever touch you. It's not possible. All right, number five. Suffering is not always punishment for sin. Now, it's not always that a person has a, you know, is hurt. It's not, it's not punishment. Somebody, sometimes it is, but sometimes it isn't. And number six, in all your hurt, God's people always have access to Him. You always have access to Him. In his delightful little book, Inward Hole, Christopher Marley writes, I had a million questions to ask God, but when I met him, they all fled my mind, and it didn't seem to matter. Now I want you to turn back to the book of Job. I'll wind it up with this. The book of Job. Now Job starts out in the ninth chapter talking about being immersed in bitterness. But he comes to chapter 39 or chapter 40, 39 and 40. And what Job found out was not that he had, you know, he, he didn't find any answers. I mean, now, there are a million questions in the book of Job. Sometimes, some of them, somebody said that there are 300 questions in the book of Job, most of them asked by Job himself. But the, but, the, but the real issue is not getting these answers. The issue is discovering what God is like. And so he comes to the 40th chapter and says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am insignificant. What can I reply to thee? I lay my hand on my mouth. I'm not going to say another word. I'm not going to ask another question. Once I have spoken, and I will, and, and I will not answer even twice, and I will add no more. Now I want you to turn over to the last chapter. I have heard of thee by the hearing of the ear. But now mine eye sees thee, therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. And what Job is saying is this, I'm not going to argue with God nor demand answers from him. I'm going to put my hand on my mouth for all I need is a new vision of God. And when I have that new vision of him, that's all that matters. You see, we don't need answers or explanations for our pain, our hurt. We just need a vision of Him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that we will not come short of grace. 
that we will not fail to experience all the love and acceptance that God has for us. And that we'll not come short of grace in our treatment of others and thus fail to be what we were created to be through Jesus Christ our Lord. There are three invitations. That invitation for you to receive Christ or join the church, commit your life to Him. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.